All right, if you got your Bibles, open to uh, James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and then Genesis chapter 41. James 5 and Genesis 41. So we continue in our study of the life of Joseph. Uh, Our study today starts with this question. Have you ever waited for something that finally arrived? All right, have you ever waited for something that finally arrived? Some of you are like, yes, Amazon every week, okay? (laughs) Just the way it goes. Or some of you are like, yes, the service this morning, finish on time. I'm sorry, we'll work on it, I promise, all right? Just a lot of good stuff to go through. Uh, If you've ever waited for something that finally arrived, a lot of the psychological studies now say that for children and adults alike, the most important moment of receiving a gift is not actually when you play with the item or when you, re- when you uh, use the item, but when you unwrap the gift. Isn't that interesting? That's the biggest endor- endorphin rush that happens is when you actually finally have this point of receiving the gift. And so um, just for the record, there are great things in this world that God can do in an instant, but there are also great things that God God has in store for us if we are patient that he reveals and he provides over time. Sometimes we can get frustrated with God because we go, Lord, you're big and powerful and you could provide this right now. Well, know this. God is so big, so strong, and so powerful that he knows when it will be the best for your good, for the good of those around you, and also for the good of the kingdom of Almighty God if he provides it at such a time that he has dictated, that he has put together. He doesn't withhold it to hurt you. He is withholding it so that in the moment that it can do the absolute most good for his name and for your good, he is going to provide it. But sometimes it can be hard to wait on those things. And I can tell you from my life personally, um, there have been times where I've had to wait for things. And if I truly was patient, God provided and it was really, really good. One of those happened uh, in a picture I'd like to show you up here. Guys, if y'all don't mind, throw the picture up on the screen. Um, So back in the day, some of you heard this part of the story before. So back in the day, um, Autumn and I had both been in long-term relationships before we met one another. And uh, I had dated someone for three and a half years and we broke up and I was single for a year and a half. And, and then Autumn had dated someone for a year and a half, broke up and she was single for a year and a half. And, uh, and then all of a sudden we met each other. And here's what happens. If you ever heard old folks say, when you know, you know, all right, I, I experienced that because it was like, whoa, this is easy. Let's get married. I mean, I remember thinking that just, man, this is wonderful. This is easy. Let's get married. And she was like, I feel the same way. Let's just, let's, let's make this happen. But I was flat broke. Okay. And at the time I was working three jobs. I was the uh, uh, intern of pastoral care at First Baptist Church in Lubbock. I was the interim youth minister at First Baptist Church in Post, Texas. And I was waiting tables at the finest restaurant in America, Red Lobster. All right. So here's the deal. As I'm working, I all of a sudden want to buy an engagement ring and get engaged. But here was the problem. I'd been good with money while I was in college, but I had not taken on any credit whatsoever. I had student loans, but I'd never credit card or anything. So when I go in to buy an engagement ring on a line of credit, they said, dude, you're a ghost. That was the term they used. You're a ghost. You have no credit. And they said, you're going to have to pay for this thing with cash. Uh, We can't have you do payments. And so I remember at that point, I had figured out a way in my budget for my to, uh, for my interning job and my youth ministry job to pay the bills, but I stayed on an extra three months working at Red Lobster so that I could save money for the engagement ring. And Autumn was so gracious, she did not pick a big engagement ring. She picked a smaller one so that we could get engaged faster. And we're one of the weird couples that actually set a wedding date before we got engaged because I was working so hard trying to make that money for the engagement ring. I'm not saying that's a good move. I'm just saying that was our move, all right? So... We're waiting. 
Sometimes when we get impatient, you can sit there and go, ugh, here's my life, and I, my, the rest of my life can't start until I get this other thing taken care of. Listen to me. God is crafting a beautiful journey for you, and you got to come to a point where you say, God, I trust you in your sovereignty that you have not pressed pause on my life, but that you are still doing good things in and through me even while I'm waiting for this moment to happen. So one of my buddies, Landon, came up, and he goes, dude, you're going to need a good engagement story. He said, I just want to offer this to you. This was a real conversation we had. He goes, I got a backyard full of extra fence wood. If you need it for your engagement, you let me know. And I'm sitting there. I was like, you know what? I could totally use a backyard full of fence wood. And so all of a sudden, we came up with this idea. We drove around town. And then I said to Landon, what if we built a prayer chapel and then I could ask Autumn to marry me, and then we could open the door in this house that we'd built, this chapel that we'd built, and say our first prayer together as an engaged couple, as a, as a new family, that we could say it right there uh, in the prayer chapel. And so anyway, we thought that was a great idea. You know, again, I'm still working these three jobs, but I would show up and I would work on this little prayer chapel with my buddy Landon, and then Autumn would actually come, my wife Autumn would come, and we worked on it with her as well. Well, in the beginning, she didn't know it was where I was going to propose, but she figured it out pretty quickly because I was working on it with such vigor, all right? Uh, but she figured that out, so I'll never forget. Finally, the day comes, and I get enough money to go get the engagement ring, and I remember, I get the money, I get the ring, I feel like it's going to burn a hole in my pocket. And so finally, I go, and uh, it took eight of us at five o'clock in the morning to load this prayer chapel onto a trailer. We took it out to a little side of the road in Idaloo, Texas, which was, you can kind of see in the background, and we set it on the side of the road. I went and picked up Autumn, oil in her lamp, just like scripture, you know what I mean? And then she showed up, sees the prayer chapel, and the rest is history. We got engaged right there, prayed our first prayer in the prayer chapel, and it was just so special. Now listen, this is for free. Any of you ever getting engaged? Put some time and effort into the engagement story because you will have to tell it forever, all right? It's one of those questions people always ask. Listen, you got to come to a point where you realize the journey, the journey is so beautiful. Whenever I see this chapel, it's a picture of mine and Autumn's love for one another and the relationship that he knit together. It wasn't anything flashy, but it was something we really took the time to work on. And Christ was the center of it as well. Now listen, if you're taking notes, open up with me to James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Patience and enjoying the journey, even when you have something on the horizon that is incredibly important that you're waiting for, is a very godly thing to do. Look at what James says in James 5, verse 7. He says, be patient then, brothers. Underline, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient, underline how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient. Underline, be patient again and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Two big reasons I wanted to look at this verse today. Number one, as he says three times in two verses, be patient, be patient, be patient. The Lord's coming is what? It's near. It is not far away. If you will just be patient through the night, the day is coming, the day of rejoicing, the day of your blessing, the day of jubilee is on the horizon. Just trust that God is in charge and that he is going to provide. And the second reason I wanted to share this verse with you um, is because this was one of the verses I memorized while we were working on the prayer chapel. And here's why. Let me read you verse 7 again. <laughs> Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Listen. 
and how he is, and how patient he is for the autumn. Now, here's what's interesting. Because my wife's name is Autumn, I had memorized this verse, and I was like, oh, this one's for me. I am being patient for the autumn, all right? I'm being patient for my wife, because it's going to happen. One day, what I've been working towards, these, three, these uh, three jobs, these extra shifts that I've been working, working on the prayer chapel with my buddies after, school, or after, a, uh, after work and after church. I mean, I'm telling you, I was patient, and the Lord provided. Now, here's what's a cool thing. There's some of you read Scripture. Remember Psalm 119, 105. We get the purpose of Scripture. David says... Lord, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. He uses two different sizes here to talk about the way Scripture works. It's a lamp because it's for step-by-step, moment-by-moment, day-by-day. But it is also a light unto our path to show us the macro decisions that we have to make in life as well. This was both a micro and a macro verse for me. I was patient for the autumn. I was patient for my wife. And yet, it was also an overarching theme of how we would have to live our lives for Christ as well. Being patient that he, in his good timing, his perfect timing would lay out for us how it was going to go. If you're taking notes, write this down. The key ingredient to being patient is genuine hope. Let me say that again. The key ingredient to being patient is genuine hope. Notice that the example that James gives here is of the farmer. The farmer is the perfect picture of hope working together with patience. The farmer takes the seed and then plants it out of sight in faith. Remember, faith means believing without seeing. The farmer takes the seed, plants it out of sight, and then hopes that God will send the rain, that God has fashioned the photosynthesis process so that eventually that will spring up as a plant that eventually produces a fruit that takes care of the farmer's family. That's the picture that we have here of the way a genuine patient or a faithful patience is supposed to work with genuine hope. You cannot have patience if you don't have hope. The two have to go together. You can't be patient for something that you don't know is still on the horizon or still a possibility. There's some of you in this room who have, again, you're being patient in a job situation. You're patient for a court date that's coming up. You're patient looking for a cure to some disease or or some struggle that you are having in a health situation. You're patient for that relationship. You're patient for the hope of salvation. Without hope, Patience is a dead end. We wait because we trust that God will keep his promises, and one day we will be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So it begs the big million-dollar question today. What does a patient faith produce? If we're told to be patient three times in this simple passage, what happens when we are faithful and we are patient What does God do with that in his almighty hand? Well, praise God, we got a great illustration of that in Genesis chapter 41, and we're going to start in verse 14. If there was ever a picture of patient faithfulness, it is this story of Joseph. For some of you who've been around, we've had eight weeks now of this study of Joseph where he has just been taking a tail kicking from the very beginning. When you study this story, Joseph starts off and he has this amazing dream that he is going to be shining like the stars in the heavens and that his brothers are going to bow down before him and that he's going to help them and help Egypt and help the name of Yahweh God. He then has a second dream and he tells his brothers about it and they look at him and they go, well done, Joseph, but you need to shut your mouth. And what they do is they sell him into slavery. 
He then gets sold to a group of Ishmaelites. The brothers basically lie or lead the father to believe uh, that Joseph has died so that nobody goes to look for him. So Joseph's off in slavery. He's then sold by the Ishmaelites to a man named Potiphar who works in Pharaoh's court. And then in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife wants to date Joseph. Joseph says, no, you're a married woman. Plus, it's just wrong. This doesn't work. And then she accuses him wrongfully of sexual assault. There's not enough evidence to convict him. So instead, they put him in limbo, hanging out in uh, Pharaoh's, in the, in the uh, captain of the guard's house, waiting basically for Pharaoh to make a decision on whether or not he'll be put to death. Instead of getting angry, Joseph continues to serve. He works hard, even though he's been wrongfully accused. And do you remember our other part of the story? He does such a good job. The warden of the prison puts him over all the other prisoners and what's happening at the prison. But Joseph is basically doing the work during the day. And then he goes back to the stocks and he goes back to the dungeon in the evenings. Finally, a cupbearer and a baker from Pharaoh's court show up. When the cupbearer and the baker show up, the warden says, Joseph also is wrongfully accused. He'd be a great mentor for you guys to have as you settle into my household. And then he says to them, Joseph, take care of these guys. Well, one night after some time, the cupbearer and the baker have dreams. Both dreams lead to the point where three days from now, something is going to happen. Joseph looks at them here in the dream, and he says to the cupbearer, three days from now, you're going to be restored to your position in Pharaoh's court. And he says, and don't forget about me, because remember, Pharaoh's the only one that can set me free. Tell him that I was good to you. Tell him that the Lord interpreted your dream through me, and then don't forget about me. And then he says, and Baker, sorry, bro, you're going to die, all right? Three days later, you're going to get hung. I'm sorry. Now, here's the deal. After that, it happens. Cupbearer gets restored to Pharaoh's side. The baker is hung three days later. And then the cupbearer then repays Joseph by not remembering him. It says he forgot about him. The scripture then says two full years have passed. This is two years of silence where he is waiting for the Lord to fulfill the vision that he gave to him. And all of a sudden, Joseph is in the stocks one day, two years later, and unbeknownst to him, the cupbearer, after Pharaoh has a couple of crazy dreams, the cupbearer says, Pharaoh, nobody can interpret your dream, but I met a dude in prison, and I was supposed to tell you about him <laughs> two years ago. Now, here's what's interesting. The cupbearer must have been such a genuine individual that even though there were wise men and magicians, spiritual leaders, trying to pour into Pharaoh, he listens to the man that he had imprisoned who still served well for the last two years. And he says, you got to meet Joseph. Before we read our scripture, simmer on that for just a second. For Joseph, it's just another day in jail when he wakes up. It's just another day in the stocks. It's just another day of serving when it has been death after death after death that's been experienced around him. But it is his day of blessing. It is his day of jubilee. And look at how it starts. Are you ready for this? For, uh, Genesis 41, verse 14. It says, So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly, underline and highlight that word quickly, brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. 
stop right there for just a minute. For those of you who've been around for this thing for eight weeks, there hadn't been nothing quick about Joseph's journey to this point. Nothing. It's been sometime later, two full years later. It's been wait, 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 wait. And all of a sudden, when the day of blessing comes, it comes in an instant. And you've got to be ready for it. Joseph is in the stocks waiting to start his day. And then all of a sudden, they come in and they go, all right, bro, we got to change your clothes and get you dressed before Pharaoh. And Joseph goes, are you serious? I've been wearing these clothes since I got here. And they go, we can tell. They smell awful. Let's get you changed. Let's get you shaved. Now, don't miss this. One of two things is happening here. Either they are cleaning him up so that he can speak with Pharaoh, or they are cleaning him up to execute him. They're cleaning him up, take him before Pharaoh so that he can receive his sentence. Joseph doesn't know, and yet he is ready to make a move. He is ready for the change that we've talked about these last few weeks that's on the horizon, and he is ready to get up and move. If you're taking notes, write this down. What does a patient faith produce? Number one, first and foremost, a heart free of bitterness. A heart free of bitterness. Can I tell you what Joseph very easily could have done in this circumstance? He could have gone, ha oh, now you take me to Pharaoh. Surprise, 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 right? Now you want to take me to do this. Well, uh, I'm going to have to check with the warden and make sure the time is okay. I have duties around here too, you know. Can I tell you what Joseph doesn't do? He does not snark and he is not bitter in this moment. Bitterness seeks to rob you of your blessing. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. Bitterness seeks to restrict and reject God's blessings for no good reason. Let me say that again. Bitterness seeks to restrict and reject God's blessings for no good reason. You have got to come to a point where you realize bitterness is a horrible trade when it comes to you experiencing the joy that God has for you in his great blessings. Now listen. There's not a person in the human race that wakes up and goes, man, I really want to be bitter today. Nobody. Nobody wakes up and says, man, I just want to be so bitter. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to be so bitter today. Listen to me. And yet, if I asked you to name some bitter people in your life, I don't think you'd have any trouble naming off a pretty good list of people. In fact, some of you would say, I'd just turn in every person I work with, right? I'm telling you, I see a lot of bitter people. Now listen to me. If no one intends to be bitter, and yet it's all around us, even hidden in our own hearts, why is that? I'm going to teach you power if you listen on this. Dad used to say that. I'll teach you power if you listen. Because bitterness is a drug. Because bitterness is a painkiller. You can write that down if you want to. Bitterness is a painkiller. Bitterness is when you are in the stocks, when you feel like you are out of control physically, when you feel like you have no say in what's going on around you. Listen, you create this little snarky world in your head, and all of a sudden, in that world, you're in control. In that world, you can say whatever you want. In that world, you can win, and it's all just with the flick of a pen. It's all just with the stroke of a word. It's you snarking at different people. But listen, it's a painkiller. It's not actually doing you any good. So I've had multiple kidney stones. A lot of that was connected to, I stopped drinking Cokes finally. I drank a whole lot of carbonated drinks, and uh, um, I'm telling you, just ripped me to shreds. I've had several, several kidney stones. And uh, each time you have a kidney stone, they give you two medications. Got a wonderful doctor, and she said to me on one of my visits, she said, here's the deal. She said, the first prescription I'm giving you is an antibiotic. She said, because of the stone tearing up your system, because I have big kidney stones, 
She said, because of the stones tearing up your system, she said, you are going to be prone to infection. She said, this bottle, I want you to take every single one of these antibiotics so that you don't get an infection on the inside. She said, this other bottle are your painkillers. She said, these do not help you get better. She said, these will help you make it through the worst two days of the pain. I said, okay. She said, do not take all of these, but you have them just in case you need them. And so then I said, what do I do if I have painkillers left over? And she goes, you are a pastor, aren't you? (laughs) She said, you want my honest opinion? She said, flush them down the toilet if you have any left over. She said, you don't want to take any of these that you don't absolutely have to take. Now listen, the painkillers numb the pain, but what is causing the pain is still going on on the inside, and that's bitterness. Bitterness is something that none of us have to have in order to get better, and yet it makes us feel good in the moment. So listen to me. If you have become addicted to the pain pill of bitterness, flush them down the toilet. Do you hear me? Flush them down the toilet. It's not causing you any good because here's the deal. Snark and bitterness are sinful. Snark and bitterness are hurting your testimony and they are not godly things to fall into. Stop taking that pain pill because on the day of blessing and the day of jubilee, you need to be healthy so that you can be who God intended for you to be. Amen? You need another biblical example, I'll give it to you. It's the story of Jonah. We read that story to kids all the time because of the story of the fish. Read Jonah like an adult. You know how the story of Jonah works out? God calls for Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach the message of Yahweh. But here's the problem. Jonah hates the Ninevites because the Ninevites had been deeply racist against the Jewish people to the point that they would pour hot tar on their family members in the middle of a public square and they would murder their families, brutally and painfully murder them in the middle of the public square. So here you've got Jonah and Jonah goes, what? You want me to share the gospel with our hated enemies, with the people who are so racist, who treat us so badly? He goes, "Uh uh-uh, I'll do anything but that. And he gets on a boat and he heads in the opposite direction. Well then, guess what happens? God is still God. God is still sovereign. So he sends a storm around the boat. Well, at that point, we don't teach this to our children, but it goes for you. Read it like an adult. You read it, and when you're to the kids, and they hear Jonah go, throw me over the side. I've caused this turmoil. Throw me over the side, and you shall be saved. Read it like an adult. It's Jonah's last-ditch effort at control. Jonah says, throw me over the side of the boat. I would rather freaking die than go take the message to the Ninevites. And the captain furthers that viewpoint because he goes, we're not going to kill you. We're not going to assist in your suicide. No. He looks at him and he goes, what are you doing? We'll figure out another way. But the storm just rages on and rages on. And Jonah goes, kill me. 
Kill me. Throw me over the side. It's my last ditch effort at control. It's my last chance to take my pill of bitterness. Throw me over the side. And finally, the captain goes, you're a fool. I can see something holy is going on here. Fine, you're a fool. And they throw him over the side. Immediately, the storm is calm. And then here's what happens. When Jonah hits the water, it's like, yes, control of my own life again. And God goes, I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> now, when you read Jonah... You picture it like Pinocchio, okay? That they're inside the belly of Monstro the whale, and they're on that boat just back and forth and back and forth. Again, read it the way it was written. I truly believe if they had meant whale, they would have said whale, okay? Big fish means that it is a mammal that is entombed Jonah. There's just enough oxygen that he is deeply uncomfortable, but he cannot die. And all of a sudden in that tomb, he's sitting there going, crud, I cannot even take my own life. The Lord is in charge. It also speaks to the bitterness and racism hidden in Jonah's heart. It took three days, three days. And then finally, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, we get the prayer of a man from the belly of the whale. It's one of my favorite verses, and I memorized it to fight bitterness in my own heart. Are you ready for this? Jonah says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be theirs. That's wisdom from the belly of the whale. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that would be there. It's Jonah saying, I held on to control. I held on to bitterness. I held on to the snark in my heart. And Lord, I have forfeited your great blessings. It begs our big question for this section. Are you ready for this? Do you need to stop taking painkillers? Do you need to stop taking painkillers? They are not healing you. You may feel like they're getting you through the day, but you've become addicted. Now, just for the record, remember we talked about micro and macro? If you are here today and painkillers, legitimate physical painkillers are your struggle, see this as a sign from the Holy Spirit that you need to stop Scripture tells us that your body is the temple of the living God. If that's you today, they are ripping you up in things you cannot see on the inside. We had two people connected with families in our church this week that died of fentanyl overdose, two in one week for our church. In a couple of cases, they think that it might even have been, or in one of the cases, they think it might even have been something that was laced onto a drug that the person was taking, that it was not intentional. You don't know what you're putting into your body. Guys, see this as the warning sign. Whether it be a figurative or a literal painkiller that you are taking, stop it. It is not helping you. Let's keep moving. That was for free. Keep moving. <laughs> Genesis 41. Now let's look at the next verses. We're going so over. Let's look at the next verses. Okay, verse, 14, verse 15. It says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, that you can interpret it. Verse 16 is so powerful. Look at this. I can't do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Underline, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing in front of the bank of the Nile. When out of the river came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. And I have never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean and ugly cows ate up seven fat cows and, uh, and came up first. But after they, uh, after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They 
just, they looked just as, they, as ugly as they were before. And then I woke up. But then in my dreams, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good, good heads. And then... I told this to the magicians, and none of them could explain it to me. Watch 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed. Underline, God has revealed. He gives God credit here again. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same in the dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are the seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain. Scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Underline and highlight, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming and throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will, swallow, will follow them. And then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine uh, followed will be so severe. Now look at 32. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by who? By God and God will will do it soon. Underline God will do it soon. Stop there for just a minute. In every paragraph and every response that Joseph makes, he points like a big neon sign to God and says, God will interpret it, not me. He says, God will surely give you insight. And he did. He says, God surely has decided that he is going to do this. Every statement he makes is God, God, God. And listen, not me, me, me. If you're in a circumstance where you are trying to get out of jail and the one person you're talking to is the one that can get you out. If you are thinking selfishly, your thought is, Pharaoh, let me do this for you. Pharaoh, let me help you. I'm the one your organization needs. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Is that not DC? I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one who can finally clean up this town. I'm the one, I'm, 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 I'm. And what does he do? The exact stinking opposite. He points like a big neon sign to God. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? What does a patient faith produce? Number one, a heart free of bitterness. And number two, an honest understanding of the universe. An honest understanding of the universe. Joseph starts as one saying, brothers, you're all going to bow down before me and look at the difference years of isolation can produce. He comes back and says, all good things come from Yahweh, including the dream that he gave you, Pharaoh. And he's given you a heads up, but it's already been written in his book what's going to happen. The humility and the understanding of his place in the universe is so timely for us in D.C. to remember that it's not about us, but God has made us for such a time as this. There's a great movie that illustrates this. I'll give you the parable of the Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby, all right? You know, one of my favorite movies, all right? You either love Will, Harrell, Will Ferrell or you hate him, and I love him, all right? So anyway, moving on. In the ballad of Ricky Bobby, he starts off in incredible pride. Remember, he gets up and he goes, I'm the, pl I'm the best it's ever been, plain and simple. I think the line is, I wake up in the morning, I pee excellence, it's something like that. Okay, again, pride, pride, pride. And then what happens? All of a sudden, he realizes he is not the greatest thing in the history of the world, and he falls down on the other end into the pit. He can hardly get out of bed. 
He can't do anything. Feels like his whole life has fallen apart, that he's worthless. And then what happens? He comes to the point where he realizes it's not so bad. He's not the person on top of the mountain that he thought he always was, but he's also not the person trapped in the gutter. He figures out his sense of self, and then he's able to move forward. Now listen to me. Some of you would say, that's just a movie. That's just Ricky Bobby. It's a thousand movies that have been made with that same principle. Listen, pride is saying, man, I'm something else. Man, I'm on top of the mountain. And the problem is we cannot be prideful because all good things come from Almighty God. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he is the reason that we are able to have hope. And then some get trapped in self-deprecation. The attitude there is, oh, I'm awful. I'm nothing. I'm terrible. I can do nothing. Well, don't you remember? It's the same God who is all-powerful and sovereign that created us in his image to do good works. God doesn't make trash you got to figure out your place in the universe. It's not all about you. But the Lord did not just create you by accident. If there is breath in your lungs, there is work that he has for you to do. Amen? we got to come to the point where we realize our place in the universe. Take your, if you're taking notes, write this down. Instead of selling himself, Joseph usefully illuminates the work and power of God. Instead of selling himself, Joseph usefully illuminates the work and the power of God. It begs the question, do you know your place in the universe? Do you know your place in the universe? One last set of verses, and we'll call it a day today. Let's look at verses 33 through 40. It says, and now, this is Joseph speaking again, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance, and they should collect all the food, these good years that are coming, to and to store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh and be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in the reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine so that they come when they come upon Egypt so that every country may not be ruined by this famine. Look at 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. The Pharaoh, so Pharaoh said to them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Stop right there for just a minute. Now, when you read this passage, sometimes you picture, those of you who are a little bit older, Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat starring Donny Osmond, all right? If that's you picturing this, they do a great job with the story, but this scene, the pride of Donny Osmond shines through just a little too much, and you miss the humility of Joseph. Listen, because when you do this part of the scene, they go, and then Donny Osmond gets up there, and he's telling him, you need to find this man, but who this man could be, I just don't know, and you can tell him, he's doing the whole thing, he's selling it, it's, it's again, it's this play, this play moment where he's selling it like, it's going to be me, it's going to be me, it's going to be me. That is not what you read here of Joseph. Joseph, draped in humility, pointing like a big neon sign to God the entire way. And then all of a sudden in this moment, he goes, Pharaoh, here's what the Lord has done. I'm so grateful to have been a service. Take me back to the dungeon. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh sits there and scratches his head and he goes, I don't know who this Yahweh is, but something holy just happened here. Something set apart, something that is beyond my comprehension has happened here. And the cupbearer goes, bro, I told you he's special. I told you. And then Pharaoh probably looked at him and said, shut your mouth, man. You had two years to tell us about him. <laughs> now listen, the way the story ends, all of a sudden, Pharaoh goes, I don't know this Yahweh, but man, this guy sure seems to. 
He goes, let's give him a shot. And the other officials go, none of us could figure this one out, boss. None of us could figure this one out. And then that's when you get our final verse this chapter. It says, verse 39, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. I guarantee you, there is no one more shocked than Joseph at this holy moment. If you're taking notes, what does a patient faith produce? Number one, a heart free of bitterness. Number two, an honest understanding of the universe. And number three, opportunities that only God could create. The Lord opens a door for Joseph here at the end. I love that we don't have any words from him because you know Joseph was just going, all I thought my future held was prison this morning. And now I get to sit next to Pharaoh and serve in his court. If you're taking notes, our last little word here for you. God loved Joseph enough to chisel genuine humility into his character before he gave him his title and position. Let me say that again. God loved Joseph, God loved Joseph enough to chisel genuine humility into his character before he gave him his title and position. It begs our final question, are you ready for your day of blessing? Are you ready for your day of blessing? Or is bitterness dragging you down? Is pride dragging you down? Is self-deprecation dragging you down? Or are you there ready for the opportunity God has set in front of you? This city will pull the best and the worst out of you, won't it? We gotta come to the point where we trust God and in faithfulness, we live a life of balance in between the two, trusting that God has us, that he is in his timing and that he is not slow in what he is doing. Now here's what's fun. In the weeks to follow, we're actually going to get to walk. As long as we walked in Joseph's struggle, we are about to walk in blessing and the restoration of his family. But I preached way too long today. So let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me, we call this our time of reflection. Nothing mystical or magical about this time. It's just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different because of the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking but just me, is there anyone here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to stop taking that painkiller, whether it be the painkiller of bitterness or the painkiller that's a literal painkiller. You'd sit there and you'd say, it's not doing me any good. It's only masking the pain. With nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to flush those suckers down the toilet, whether it be figurative or literal. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. Maybe half the room on that one. This city, it's a tough one. This also is a sin of very intelligent people. Those snark, that, that quip, that comeback, it's not foolish people who struggle with this sin. It's smart ones. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you, but your prayer is very simple. Just say, God, flush these down the toilet. I'm done with this. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I've either fallen into pride or self-deprecation. And the truth is, I need to trust God's sovereignty and his control. And I also need to realize he made me in his image created to do good works 
with nobody looking but just me, if you're here and you'd say, Zach, would you pray for me that I would have an honest understanding of the universe and know my place? If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now, ready, set, go. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down, so many of you. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you, but your prayer again is very simple. Just pray, God, help me. Help me to know my place, what you created me to do. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? Would you pray that I'd be ready with oil in my lamp, that I would be ready for the blessing that God has in store for me, that I would be ready for those opportunities and that I would be patient as I wait? If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. So many of you, so many, y'all can put your hands down. The day is coming and it happens very quickly. Trust him. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings. Thank you so much for the chance that we've had to study your word. Speak in power in these moments. Lord, thank you for the story of Joseph. I pray that you would give people what they seek today in your name. And Lord, that you would set us free from bitterness that you would help us to realize our place in the universe, our specific place that you have carved out for us. And Lord, I pray that we would trust you and wait for you until that glorious moment when you show up. We love you, Lord. Speak in power in these next moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.